This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by Wealthdesk, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkins and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. All right. Hello, everybody. Today, we have a special podcast, a bonus podcast episode. I've got Grant on, per usual, but we also have Jonathan Golub, who's a chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. And today we're really going to be diving into some uh, deep topics, you know, concerning what the market looks like, you know, in the midst of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and and really what we're gearing off into the second quarter. Uh, so I guess to start us off, you know, there's been a lot of forecasts regarding, you know, a massive decline in GDP for the second quarter of 2020, um, and then followed by, you know, potential uh, rebound in the second half of the year. Uh, Jonathan, uh, what is you know Credit Suisse's position on the second quarter numbers and 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 what that looks like? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And before we even get into what the numbers are, I think that whatever numbers I give you are going to be misleading. And let me exp- explain why. When people quote GDP, um, they look at the difference between the second quarter and the first quarter. And then they multiply that by four, and effectively they annualize the fall. So if we say that we think there's going to be a 20 or 30 percent um, decline in uh, in second quarter GDP, that's not really true. You almost need to divide that number by four to put it in context versus the the prior year. So on a year-over-year basis, you're looking at something that's going to be down less than or potentially well less than 10%, which will be a big number uh, measured on a year-over-year basis, but still something that um, will will not be as as rough as some of the down 30 or 40% um, GDP uh, forecasts that are are being bantered, uh, bantered about. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've already seen, I think, huge drops. I mean, U.S. private payrolls have gone down by about, you know, 20.2 million in April, which is, you know, the worst job loss uh, in the history of the ADP. Um, I mean, I think that kind of, you know, that beckons really, you know, what what might be the, you know, the peak unemployment as a result of the crisis from, you know, both a high case and, and low case. Yeah, yeah. If you if you if you really wanted to calibrate what's going on right now, I, I think that job losses are probably a better, more tangible way for people to think about this. I mean, if you look at the, the number that I look at more than anything else is the the uh, weekly unemployment claims. Every Thursday, the uh, the Department of Labor tells you how many people filed for unemployment claims, and you've had 30 million Americans. File for unemployment in the last, um, you know, in the last six weeks or so, and by the end of uh, the month of May, that number will probably reach something closer to 40 million. Now, to put that in perspective, um, there are 330 million Americans, but only half of those are in the labor force. Some of them are retired. Some of them are are kids in, in school. Uh, some of them choose for whatever reason uh, not to work. They're taking care of someone, and so. Um, when you look at what this would translate into in terms of an unemployment rate, you're looking at an unemployment rate that if it were marked to market, if it was updated every day, um, would be you know, well over 20%. And you know, the, not only is that a hardship 
right now for so many families, but it's going to take um, a while to get these people back to work. So while GDP says, what did we do this quarter? Um, the unemployment rate is something that um, not only does affect where you are at this moment, but is going to have a tail that's going to last for, you know, for, for a while. I think that's a really important important point too because we did see about 10 years of job growth pretty much erased over the last six weeks from the coronavirus so do you think that compared to previous recessions that unemployment will come down a little bit faster as we see states begin to open up and and companies bring workers back or do you think it's going to take a while for unemployment really to to drop again well, I, I, I think the answer, because you're asking two questions, I think the answer is yes. Um, so we're going to have a really big, we're going to have a, a lot of Americans are going to be out of work. The one thing that the government is doing, which is, I think, really important is, first of all, they're giving small businesses um, effectively grants um, over the near term and loans longer term to be able to keep workers in their seats. So for all the people who are unemployed, there are a lot of people who are being kept in their jobs that would otherwise be unemployed. And that allows for things to get back um, moving much more quickly. It's much easier for a company to increase the hours of their workforce or to give somebody more work to do than to have to first go out and rehire people and go through the whole legal process. So the government has been very proactive. Um, and normally what happens when people are unemployed, they very sharply cut back on their expenditures. Now, right now, people are spending less money because they're staying at home, so it's, it's hard to go out and go on a vacation or spend money in a restaurant, but, the, but money is in people's hands. So you're, you're really not hearing uh, about people who are starving or get thrown, getting thrown out on the streets because they can't afford their rent. There's an awful lot being done to really create almost a, a divide between the number of people who are out of work and the number of people who were feeling, you know, tremendous stress. I'm sure it's very stressful for a lot of people, but but that the that level of, of stress and anxiety and social and economic pressure would be much worse if the government wasn't as aggressive as possible. And you're asking about how long the process takes to get people back to work. Um, a lot of this is is really being the damage is being mitigated by the tremendous amount of liquidity and availability of capital, both by the Fed as well as by the federal uh, government. So this, this might not be the V-shaped bounce that everybody hopes it will be, but the process, the speed with which the government acted on this, the fact that Democrats and Republicans in just a few short days came together, of course there's going to be arguing over this. That's what, that's what the process is supposed to be. But <laughs> this was done in a very bipartisan way very quickly, and, and I think that however bad it's going to be, it would have been much worse without it. I definitely agree, but we, we have seen a little bit of blowback about uh, the small business lending and that a lot of publicly traded companies were getting grant, granted access to that What's been your overall take of that program, and and do you think there will be continual blowback about who's receiving some of the some of the small business loans? Uh, well, I, I think that there's I think that there's um, a whole bunch of issues here. First of all, the government is trying to put money in the hands of the people who need it most. 
The problem is if you have two businesses side by side and one is a sit-down restaurant and one does it primarily takeout, the sit-down restaurant is going to have a much, much more difficult time in this environment than the, the restaurant that has a bigger takeout order uh, or you know, takeout order flow. How does the government go company by company and say, well, let's lend money to this guy. Let's not lend money to that guy. Or how do you know that maybe this was a business that was already going to go under because the guy wasn't doing a good job of managing it, and maybe he's not really loan worthy. I don't know. It, it's, it's almost impossible to get money out into the public, into people's hands as quickly as you want to, and yet be discerning as, as much as, as you would hope to be at the same time. And so the, I think that there was a clear decision on the part of policymakers to say, we're going to get that money out because we do not want people um, starving. We don't want people being, um, you know, losing their homes and, and things of this nature. We don't want small businesses closing that don't need to close. And that means that we're going to probably give money to, or, or not probably, you're definitely going to give money to businesses that don't necessarily need it. You're going to give uh, money to uh, people who um, really aren't feeling the stress. Um, retirees right now, many of them are getting additional money from the, uh, from the government or received these checks from the government when they weren't working. They're, they're, they're not dislocated. But these programs were put in place to uh, make sure that you extinguish the fire as much as you could, as quickly as you could. And afterwards, there'll be a lot of people who will question the wisdom of some of these choices. But in the heat of the moment, um, I think the intentions were noble. And I think that the majority of Americans, even those that question um, how all this capital is put to use, even, even those that are um, doubtful on some of these, I, I still think, believe that the, the efforts were well-intentioned and at the end of the day, um, probably quite productive. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I, the government's been a lot more proactive uh, in this crisis, you know, whether we're looking at, you know, monetary policy or or fiscal. Um, and I guess that kind of begs, you know, you, you mentioned this might not be, you know, a perfect V-shape, but, uh, you know, what in the alphabet, you know, soup of, you know, how recoveries look like uh, <laughs> might 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 we you know might we recover you know would you see more of an l or a w or or a u or um you know what's the trajectory all right so from a market's perspective i think that we're probably a, a w i think that the the market given the amount of dislocation the market probably should be down a lot more than the you know 15 16% it is off of all time highs and down 10% year to date as of the time that we're recording this but the that's the market the economy I think, it, I think that there's two separate but related issues. The first issue is how quickly do we renormalize? And this is not just simply about us saying, let's get back to work and, and open things up. The, the virus is going to tell you when, it's, when you're allowed to get back. And we, we don't have anything that looks like a vaccine right now. We can, we can all um, guess as to whether we're going to get something in three months or a year in three months. But we don't have something right now, nor do we have a, um, a, a really efficient therapeutic where if you get sick, 
they can give you a you know a, a, a you know prescription of pills and and magically this is going to go away. So the the likely path is that we're going to try to renormalize and social distancing because nobody likes being in their home so much and we're we're going to some you know we're going to get a little bit looser on that. And the natural result is that we're going to have um, more people get sick. And we're already seeing that right now where the original models were reading that there would be an incredibly um, steep collapse in the number of deaths in people with, the, uh, the, with COVID-19. And what appears to be happening is it appears to be not getting worse but it's also not getting much better. It, it appears to be kind of plateauing at a higher level as uh, we are trying to reopen. And what that tells us is, is that this is going to be a longer process of renormalization. And I, I think that that means the likelihood of a, a V-shaped bounce in the economy and in, in our way of life is probably um, a, a little bit on the optimistic side. Um, that's, so that's, that's the first part of, of how this recovery looks. The second issue is how easy is it for businesses to get back up and running the way that they were, uh, the way they were before. So if you think about, um, you know, auto production, let's assume that, you know, you're, you're, you're an auto manufacturer or an auto parts manufacturer. You have all these 2020 vehicles that are now sitting on dealer lots that haven't been sold. They're going to have to be sold at a, at a discount. And when they're, when they're sold, that's going to put downward pressure on the number of vehicles that are, that are going to be produced. The problem is auto you know, manufacturers have big fixed overhead. So if you cut down the number of vehicles from 17 million per year to a, a lower number, um, the profitability goes down much, you know, it goes down really meaningfully because of this fixed overhead. You have uh, big retailers, you know, um, you know, what you know um let's let's say in in the apparel space area or things where there's seasonal inventory the seasonal inventory of clothes there's seasonal inventory of sporting equipment and the retailers really aren't in the business of selling this year's prom dresses next year they don't really they're not really set up to hold that in inventory or and to finance that and, and the like so those businesses are going to have a harder time than they normally would and, and if you kind of go through each of these pieces, what you realize is, is even if we were to pretty quickly get through the health issues, that the restart process for the economy is, is, is still going to be a slow process. If we have 30 or 40 million Americans that are going to be out of work, it's going to take some time. And, and you said it right. There's going to be a rapid incre- you know, increase in hiring and probably faster than anything we've ever seen in human history after this is over. But it's still going to take a period of time to to get everybody back to work. Yeah, and it seems like some sectors are really inundated, right? Whereas others, you know, there's, there's a tremendous amount of bleeding. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, how tech in some areas – you know, this is this is actually a benefit, but then of course, you know, across retail or or, or travel and, and along the likes, that's you know, that's that's going to be really changed the face of those industries for for quite some time. Yeah, you know, for for investors, this this may be the you know the single most important question. Um, if you look at the S and P five hundred, um, 
even in the first quarter where the, the profits look like they're going to be down 13 to 14% versus the prior year, the, you know, the majority of companies are still, um, you know, the, the vast majority of companies are still profitable. As a matter of fact, close to half the companies have actually profits that are higher than they were a year ago. Um, so you have, you know, tech broadly speaking, and not only tech, but internet retail and, and, and media companies, those are largely, um, they had profit growth in the first quarter. They, they actually, the growth was, the, the, the profits were higher than they were the prior year. If you look at consumer products companies, whether they be, um, you know, your, your local pharmacy or supermarket, or it could be the, you know, the, the household products companies and food companies, their profits are up versus uh, a year ago. And then you have cyclical companies, industrials, uh, mines, autos, home builders, where their profits are down very dramatically. Sometimes they're entirely wiped out. Sometimes they're actually running at a loss already. And that's only the first quarter. Uh, in the second quarter, um, you have, again, in, that, in tech and in non-cyclical parts of the market, which is about 60% of the S&P, the growth rate will be negative, but they'll be still vastly profitable. And yet you have about uh, 40% of the market, which is you know, financials, banks, um, and those cyclical parts of, of the economy that I mentioned before, that are going to be feeling a lot of pain. So for those that want to be invested in the stock market, there's lots of places that you can be and still be um, reasonably well protected by profits and dividends and things of that nature. And we've just seen this week, just to take one one sector, uh, Warren Buffett dropping his his investments in the four major U.S. airlines, and we've seen airline volume drop by about 95%. It seems like there are private planes flying right now with, on average, 17 passengers. Do you see this really changing the, the travel industry and airline industry, or, or do you see it recovering? What, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, you know, if, if we look out far enough, and I don't know whether far enough is three years or four years from now, um, but we're going to be traveling because we like to travel. And, we, and we're getting a lot of questions on this issue. Is Are we going to be forever changed by this? Will we not want to go to restaurants and movie theaters? Are we going to want to work from home? Are we going to do things differently? Um, you know, are men going to forever stop shaving and things like, like that? And, <laughs> and, and if you – what? I just thought that was funny because up here in Montana, I think most of us stopped shaving a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you, well, you know, it, it, but every everyone believes that that it's you know people in on the West Coast who are the trendsetters, but I'm I'm of the belief that it's actually people in Montana. So you've just <laughs> you know you you've just gotten that right from me. Um, but um, if you the, the if you look at what happened. After September 11th, when we were convinced our lives would be forever changed, and they were, and, and you know, we, we ended up going to war, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that, that was, you know, that was a terrible thing. Um, but we, in terms of our day-to-day -day lives for the average American, with the exception of slightly longer lines at the airport, we we really did go back to what where we were before, and I think that that's exactly what's going to happen now. So 
Will there be a, a slow process for the airlines? For sure. Um, will that, you know, will it be in, in the travel industry or cruise lines or, or things of that nature? For sure. But will we become hermits as a result of this? Um, or, or are we going to, you know, to change the way that we interact with the world? I think in five years or three years from now, we will be surprised at how normal or similar this was to to the past. And so these, this belief that, you know, millennials aren't, are going to want to move out to the suburbs and not stay in big cities because they've spent the last year cooped up in an apartment and they just need to get out. Um, I think that'll be true for a short period, but I think that, that uh, things will return back to normal quicker than we think. One of the, major things that's really been a takeaway is, you know, just how aggressive the Fed's been. Um, I think in a way, even more so than they were in 08. And, you know, it's it's almost surprising because there was a lot of chatter. I mean, just, just last year that if there was to be a recession, they wouldn't have many, you know, arrows in their quiver, so to speak, uh, you know, because rates had maintained, you know, for, were low for, for, for quite some time. Uh, let's kind of examine the role of the Fed and what they've done and, and, um, you know, just really how overarching it's been. Well, so the, the the goal of the Fed, first of all, is not to prop up the stock market, and that I'm I'm convinced is is not their intention here. Even though that that's uh, clearly what's what's been happening, their job is to make sure that there's liquidity in 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 the time of crisis. Is to make sure that there is liquidity in the system so that people have access to capital, so that businesses can meet, meet payroll, that businesses can invest in the equipment that they need, things of that nature. And when you have a shock like this, the availability of capital just falls apart. As a matter of fact, the most recent loan officers survey came out saying that banks, um, because of concern about getting repaid on their loans, was tightening up on lending standards, that, that they were, you know, requiring more money down um, on, a, on a home or more money down on, on a, you know, on a business investment in order to protect their own interests. So the, the Fed is forced to step in and open those lanes of liquidity. And that's what you've seen, you know, credit spreads blew out, now they're coming back in. And so that capital is freely flowing. From a stock market perspective, the whether the Fed is buying stocks or whether the Fed or whether the Fed is buying bonds, the stock market basically treats it as if it's the same thing. They're injecting capital in quote unquote risky assets. Um, you know, and when I say risky, anything other than a U.S. Treasury is a risky asset. And so the result is is that they're pushing the stock market up, not because they're targeting it, but because to a certain extent it's it's just in the path of the the actions being taken by the Fed. And we're, it's a very strange environment for professional investors, uh, people who run hedge funds or portfolio managers or, or what have you, because they're seeing the underlying fundamentals um, as really tenuous and problematic. And at the same time, the, the, there's an overwhelming amount of capital being poured in to keep things moving, and the market is holding up substantially better than we all would, would think. And what people are asking is, how long can they do this for? Now, eventually, 
the Fed can't be the, or you don't want the Fed to be the, you know, the, the key supplier of capital. You want that to be handled by the private economy. Um, but in the near term, they have, they really do have almost unlimited ability to move things. And the problem for people like myself who try to model this out and, and, and try to, you know, put some, uh, some numbers or some structure around it, it's very difficult to know how, you know, how much capital they're going to put in. It's much easier for me to model out where unemployment is going to go or, or where profits are going to go. But the response of the Fed is something that, that's unprecedented, and there is no prior example to work off of. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I saw that they acted rather quickly, uh, and and I think I, th- I personally think they're doing a great job. I wanted to change gears here a little bit and uh, ask a bit of a question about how companies previously had looked for efficiency. So we moved a lot of supply chains globally and uh, abroad, specifically to China, where we've seen a lot of tech supplies and medical supplies come from. Uh, what do you think the coronavirus will have on the long-term impacts on global supply chains, specifically with U.S.-based companies? So, you know, let me let me first give you the conclusions, and then and then there's the 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 why the are a little bit more um, complicated um, or or debatable. But globalization is going to take a, a step back, and that's probably the conclusion. But that was already happening. That was happening because of issues related to the, the trade dispute that we've been having with uh, China. And I think whether people are a supporter or or not of the, the president, I think that it's widely believed among um, Americans that 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 China um, was in many cases not honoring um, intellectual property and not acting as a good player, and that that some of these issues needed to to be addressed. So that had reasonably popular support beforehand. Um, secondly, in a weak economy going to face, but that we actually faced in the last decade where GDP was, was lower than it's been historically, there's a natural desire everywhere to try to retain local jobs. So if your economy is great and you say, great, I'll make, you know, I'll make some, something here and you make something there and we'll trade with each other and, and we'll have greater efficiencies and everybody's happy. But when the economy is slower, um, we say, well, wait a second, why don't I make you know, both A and B? And why don't I hold all of those jobs here? And, and, and therefore, we'll try to you know, increase our economy. And that, unfortunately, is that reversal of globalization, um, that, that on, you know, re-onshoring of activity is not great for productivity because you, know, you lose economies of scale when you have everybody making a widget instead of one country making widget A and another country making widget B and then them trading. So the, the result of this, unfortunately, first of all, it's, 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 I think it's inevitable, but the result is probably not great for economic growth and, um, and the like over the, you know, over the next decade or so. And you know, regardless of, of whether China you know what we think of of the way China approached these issues around trade. We've all been beneficiaries of you know really inexpensive goods coming from overseas, 
that has kept U.S. inflation down, that's, um, that, that if we had to manufacture them in the U.S., would have been much more expensive and maybe wouldn't have been uh, available. Yeah, I, my mind on it, it's it's it's, it's kind of it's it's complicated. And when people have you know talked about onshoring a lot of this stuff, I've always said you know I have no interest in you know spending eight thousand dollars on an iPhone, right? But um, but it, it's been interesting when we look at like the light of the last couple of years have really been shown as you know very protectionist. I mean, whether we want to look at leaving you know the TPP or you know a lot of the issues we've had with with China and Europe in terms of steel and a wide variety of products, do, do you see that level of protectionism you know increasing or or staying the same amongst this pandemic, or do you see some kind of movement towards uh, free trade out of maybe necessity? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think that there's specifically with with China, there's going to be substantially more. If there was pressure before, I think that we now look at certain key inputs, whether they they're inputs into American drugs or um, certain rare earth metals or certain supplies that or or parts of our supply chain that are dependent on China. And I think that there's going to be a rethinking from policymakers. Are, are those strategic decisions that we as Americans um, want to continue making? And I think in certain cases, we're going to rethink, rethink that. And I think that that's, that, again, that, that process was underway for trade reasons before and intellectual property reasons before. But now I think that there are going to be other reasons why there's likely going to be a movement to walking back some of this globalization. So um, I think that um, yeah, I, I, I think that's inevitable. The other thing is, if we end up with a large number of people who are unemployed, and let's just say that um, you know a certain uh, medical mask is made primarily in China. The U.S. can say, well, why don't we open a plant here and we'll put some of these American workers back to work. And you know, even if it costs a little bit more money to do locally, um, we'll, we'll be putting workers back to work and there's a, a national a benefit. And I think that if we were running at full employment, it's much easier to say, okay, there's, there's no additional labor. Go ahead, we'll outsource it. But when you have a large pool of labor and when you have a U.S. government who is – going to be more than willing to put, you know, government capital and support behind projects, because as much as the government right now is injecting capital to keep, you know, people spending and to keep small businesses going and the like, there's going to be, even after this is over, there's going to be a fair bit of government stimulus probably for several years, because the government is going to want to do everything they can to get these workers back to work and um, ultimately, I think that that process is going to probably be uh, would be a little bit more. It's going to be more trade negative than it would have been in a typical recession because of some of the dynamics we're facing right now. Yeah, when we're looking at emerging markets, I think that's going to be an important story to follow because. I mean, normally when you see you know a, a collapse in in you know U.S. equities, uh, you know it's usually or or weakened dollar, it's usually a good good year falling for emerging markets. But I mean, a lot of countries, like if we look at India, for example, 
I mean, yeah, that's a, it's a very young population, but a lot of these countries, whether we're talking about India or, or Vietnam or, or what have you, uh, they're still, their healthcare systems become, you know, wildly, you know, overrun and they don't necessarily have the necessary infrastructure. Uh, so, so what do we see, you know, emerging markets looking like relative to the U.S. economy and, and the U.S. market, you know, after the, the dust settles on this thing? Well, you know, first of all, if, if we come back to this issue of healthcare at, at the core of it, and as horrible as this has been in, in the U.S., and, and I, I live in the New York area, so it's been um, really the, the epicenter for the United States and in many cases the world, but, but we can, you know, we have advanced medical techniques as much as we put an unbelievable amount of strain on the on the healthcare system and healthcare workers were really being pushed to the to their limits. The there this is still an infinitely stronger healthcare system than you would have in in you know in sub-Saharan Africa or in you know places like India or certain places in South America. And so um, I I I really think that that um, the, the damage that can be done to those economies. Um, really could be, you know, substantially more, not even economies, but, you know, to their, the populations could really be substantially um, worse than, than it is here. And I, I really hope that that um, doesn't play out. From a stock market perspective, the most important issue, and you were talking before about sectors, the U.S. stock market is dominated by innovative healthcare and consumer staples and technology related companies. And if you look at the um, non-US, even developed, you know, Europe and Japan, they are much more manufacturing oriented, much more banks. And those businesses are in the wrong place uh, right now in terms of how they're going to handle this crisis. They're, they're, they're businesses that naturally do worse in a downturn. Um, and emerging markets, in many ways, is the same. There, there's a, an awful lot of exposure to, you know, energy and resources and manufacturing and the like, and those are not groups that hold up well. So, you know, from a you know from a, a diversification point of view, I think that there are times where being diversified in emerging markets and even globally is an enormous benefit. I just think that right now that larger cap, higher quality companies, primarily in the United States, are, are, are just likely to, to, to do much better. Yeah, and it, and it might be interesting to see, too, you know, the level of nationalization we see after the pandemic, you know, whether we're talking about the developed world or or the developing world as, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of governments are going to want to want to see something, you know, in, in response to, to their bailouts of these companies, whether that's, whether that's equity or, or, uh, you know, temporary, you know, barring them from doing, you know, stock buyback. So, so that's going to be interesting to see as well, how that plays out on a, on a legislative level. Yeah. Listen, I think that there's going to be all kinds of very, very interesting policy issues. Um, what we saw in the last crisis is when, you know, right now a lot of what the U.S. government is trying to do is to keep small businesses afloat. But big businesses are are under a lot of pressure as well, and some of them are going to um, really struggle. And when they leave the crisis, they're going to have a lot more debt on their hands. So even if they 
um, come through okay, there doesn't mean that they won't be a little bit um, wounded. But in the last crisis, you know, there were a number of companies that when the when the federal government went injected capital, they took an ownership interest in. And so in certain cases, when the government is um, either providing capital or whether it be through a loan or a guarantee or a bailout or whatever the form that that is, they're going to – they may take ownership interest. They may um, put restrictions. The government definitely does not want to provide companies with capital only for them to give it to the, back to the shareholders. And they want that, comp, that money in the business to run the business, to keep people employed. And when the business is healthy again, then they can begin that, uh, you know, that, that process. Of, of beginning to return capital shareholders. So that, um, that makes, um, you know, that makes total sense. Um, in terms of paying for all of this, which we didn't talk about at all, but it's very possible that you could see um, a series of um, privatizations that happen on the other end. Um, we are, you know, for the most capitalist country in, in the world, um, are, are, airports and our roads and our national infrastructure and ballparks are largely owned by the government. Um, and if you look at the trends in many other countries, many of these are being very successfully privatized, that they're in private hands, they're, they're highly regulated, um, but they end up being wonderful investment opportunities because they provide steady income for the people investing in those assets, and they also act as a great source for the government to raise capital. So it could be the federal government, it could be a state that takes a state road or a state facility or a city, and they sell that, they raise money, they help pay for some of the um, losses or to cover their pension benefits and things of that nature. So it's going to be very interesting how the role of government is going to be renegotiated in this uh, in this process right now we just want to we want to get through this as well as we can but the process the aftermath is beginning to be something that people are starting to discuss and debate i'm getting a lot of phone calls from people who say to me okay i know we're not there now walk me through what the next two years or five years looks like and what happens to inflation deflation what happens to you know you know what, what happens to all of this government debt and it, it's there's there's, you know, if there's uncertainty on the near term, there's equally uncertainty on how this plays out longer term. Definitely. And if one thing about legislation that I saw recently is that uh, there has maybe been calls for blocking M&E or uh, M&A right now, uh, mergers really, and we do see a lot of even larger tech companies sitting on a large, large pile of cash. Do you see uh, mergers during the recession to, to increase? And do you think that the legislation would even think about blocking mergers as we as we come out of the recession and have some failing companies? Yeah, so, so my assumption is the the idea behind this is that you don't want people to um, profit at the at the misery of others. They, that you have a company that's getting beaten up right now, and you get a strong, larger company that's going to unfairly take advantage and buy that company. But but that's not the way it, it, I think it really works. What you have is, um, in many cases, a failing company that that doesn't have the capital they need, and they're going to go bankrupt. And somebody says to them, "You can get nothing on your own, or I can give you." 
you know, 50% of what you used to be worth, but 50% more than you were going to get if you, if you closed your doors. And, and, but I'm going to take you over, and, and, but, and, and it's your choice. We're not, nobody's forcing you to make this decision. And I, I think that that's what's supposed to happen. Um, and to, you know, while on one hand, it's easy to draw a narrative that the, you know, that the stronger are in some way taking advantage of the weak. I, I, I don't think that that's the reality of it. I think that, um, I mean, look at what happened in the financial crisis. You had stronger banks taking over weaker banks, and you ended up with a solid banking system. And people, um, in, you know, in certain cases were able to, uh, you know, get jobs in those new entities, in certain cases not. But you had a continue, you know, a continuity of services being provided, and so um, I, 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 it doesn't mean that the people, the proponents of this, are not well intentioned, because I'm, I, I'm sure that they are. But the more that the market sorts this out, the better off we are. And what's really a little bit difficult right now, because we've talked a lot about um, all that the government is doing to make things better, but you know. In hindsight, when we look back at this period in three or four or five years from now, we're going to have the view that the government should do as much as they are that is necessary, but not a bit more. And that's what it's going to look like in the future. Right now, we just want them to do everything possible to get us through. But, be, but the more that we can use the market to solve problems, um, the better off we are. But, but, it's, you know, but it's obviously a very challenging time. Absolutely. And uh, gentlemen, we're closing out the hour here. Uh, Jonathan, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's a very insightful conversation um, for all for all listeners. Uh, thank you for tuning in and subscribing. And uh, we'll talk to you at a regular schedule next week. Uh, once again, uh, thank you all. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.